Welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, the podcast for the politically homeless and the home for those who like their politics and colors other than red and blue. I'm your host, Dan Sally, and I am recording from Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. Now, if you're new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, tell one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows by word of mouth, folks. Now, one of the ideas I started exploring last year on this podcast is what the world would look like if the dollar lost its standing as the global reserve currency. And I just finished reading Ray Dalio's The Changing World Order, which you should check out if you haven't already. And it helped synthesize a number of ideas I'd been rolling around in my head for years prior. And fast forward a year, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine has made the subject of dollar dominance front and center for countries either currently under or worried about being under U.S. sanctions. And as we learned in the episode I did with Andrew Small a couple of weeks ago, China is seeking to insulate itself from the dollar-based financial system. And part of this involves making their currency, the renminbi, more prominent in international trade. Now, I also highlighted the headline a couple of weeks back uh, on how China and Saudi Arabia had begun to hint at closer ties as Saudi Arabia invited China's president, Xi Jinping, to visit And the government also hinted they might take payments for oil and renminbi. And this is fairly significant as oil has been priced exclusively in dollars since the 1970s. And it's part of what gives the United States such outsized sway when it comes to levying sanctions such as the ones currently against Russia. Now, for the next few episodes, we're going to be exploring the idea of a post-dollar world what efforts are currently underway to make that happen, what history tells us about how things might play out, and what the world might look like when it does happen. But before we jump into that, because that stuff is fairly dense, I wanted to tee it up with an episode I did last year that lays the foundation for a lot of what we're going to talk about. And Last year, when I first started exploring the idea of the dollar losing its standing, I came across a series called Preparing for the Collapse of the Petrodollar System by a man named Jerry Robinson on followthemoney.com. I invited him on to discuss the series, and I learned quite a bit about how oil markets help create demand for the U.S. dollar. Now, if you're new to this podcast, you're going to find this interesting. And if you're a longtime listener, this is going to be a good refresher for what we're going to be discussing in the coming weeks. I hope you enjoy it. Special shout out to Navar, who I know will enjoy this one. And we will talk next week. Today's guest might as well have written the book on the subject. Jerry Robinson is an economist and author who runs the website followthemoney.com, a site that provides a ton of tools and resources dedicated to helping folks find financial freedom. And he has an extensive piece on the genesis of the petrodollar system, what it's meant for the global world order, and what it means for America's future. And I'm going to warn you here. We go into some fairly dark waters, 
but I will be back at the end to help pull you out of the abyss or at least give you some company down there. Now, one final note, there is some static in the recording. I don't know what went wrong there. It's worth listening to anyway, so bear with me. Apologies for the technical issues, and I will be back at the end with some final thoughts. Some of the stuff that I saw on your site that I really loved. That five levels of financial freedom I just found really cool. And and one of the reasons is for everybody watching and everyone listening is it's not just like a financial plan, but it actually starts from the base level. Like, what do you have in savings? Do you have enough water to survive a three-day disaster, Mm -hmm. for example? Um, Or Mm -hmm. in the recent case of COVID, do you have enough toilet paper to survive a pandemic? Jerry does not have that. I just kind of threw that in there as an aside. But um, <laughs> but the the but what I really liked is it is it really takes a very practical view. So again, I would strongly recommend folks here listening uh, check this out. Now, one of the things that you know we've been talking a lot about in in recent episodes is dollar dominance. Um, is the fact that our way of life here in America is largely dependent on our ability to sustain massive levels of debt. And that is a precarious position. And so in doing some research, that's when I came across your site and a big piece you did on the petrodollar. Uh, And this is something I don't think a lot of folks understand. I was very interested in in having you on, giving you a chance to talk uh, a little bit about the concept and what it means for us right now in in 2021. Now, Jerry, I'm going to try and summarize the first 30 years of post-World War II monetary policy, and you can confirm whether I'm right or wrong here, and then get us to the petrodollar. But at the end of World War II, a number of global leaders met in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, to discuss the new world order effectively. And one of the big things that came out of that uh, was uh, the agreement by a number of nations to peg their currency to the dollar. Now, at the time, uh, the dollar's value was pegged to gold. The dollar or the the U.S., I think, owned somewhere around 75% of the world's uh, gold supply, was 50% of GDP, very strong economically, made perfect sense. Uh, As time went on and as the U.S. started to engage in ever escalating spending, especially during the Johnson administration, when you had both Vietnam and the Great Society, um, a lot of these countries started to question how sound uh, this dollar arrangement was and started to redeem their dollars for gold. Now, that all reached a sort of fever pitch when Richard Nixon floated the dollar rather than pegging it to the value of gold, closed the convertibility of the dollar to gold, uh, and led us to where we are now, which is a floating fiat currency. How am I doing so far, Jerry? That's you're doing great. That's exactly All right. right so far. Pass the class. So, so <laughs> now pass. there's a there, there's a period of uh, let's call it economic uncertainty or economic turmoil after that dollar floats, and it leads the U.S. to a very interesting arrangement. And can you maybe pick it, p- take the baton from here? and tell everyone what happens after that point. Sure, and let's just let's just fill in a couple of uh, points too. Uh, when you talked about the convertibility of gold, let's remember that back in, ni- in the late 19, or actually in the early 1930s, after the Great Depression, one of their policy responses 
was then by FDR, uh, President FDR, to uh, end the convertibility of the dollar into gold uh, domestically. So the dom- so the domestic link was cut back in 1933. Of course, that didn't really mean much because um, supposedly people were supposed to turn in their gold or face fees or face fines or whatever. Well, nobody faced any fees, nobody faced any fines, nobody went to jail. But it was simply a policy. So that was the first initial cut or break with the gold standard. And then by 1971, the reason why it was the shot heard around the world was because, Dan, this was uh, an international link that was being cut. So not only now, you know, were all of these people who were holding U.S. dollars around the world uh, or here domestically not able to convert to gold, but now internationally, everyone involved was no longer able to to convert back to that gold uh, standard. And as you pointed out, what this did was it created a lot of monetary uncertainty. The things that had been kind of held the global economy together from nineteen from the mid nineteen forties on to uh, the early nineteen seventies was in question. And that was a pretty raucous period anyway. There were a lot of tensions and things going on. So by the, by the early 1970s, um, as it became clear that countries like France, uh, to a lesser extent, Germany and other nations were demanding uh, you know, gold for their dollars because they did not trust the fiscal recklessness, the monetary recklessness of Washington. They said, you know, we'll take these dollars, we'll convert them back to gold and kind of watch from the sidelines while we figure out what this what this empire is doing. And it slowly got to the point where you mentioned where President Nixon really saw no other choice but to close that window, to say, no, we will not give you gold in exchange for these dollars. You're just out of luck. Well, as you can imagine, that created quite a bit of bad blood and mm-hmm. a little bit of a little bit of uncertainty or quite a bit of uncertainty around the world. And you know, President Nixon was smart. One of the smartest, even though of course he was, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, quite a colorful character, he was yeah. in fact very br- very bright and as was his Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. Mm-hmm. And that and at the time, they probably didn't know the effect of what their plan would have. I don't, I don't view this as some sort of backroom dealing where they were all planning to mastermind something. I think it was kind of a, it was kind of a hopeful strategy that might work. They had no idea it would work so well. But what the idea was was that the, the demand globally for dollars because it was not convertible into gold post August 1971. Many countries said, why are we holding these dollars? Except for the fact that we use them all the time, if that's a good reason. But now suddenly the other reason of having that stability and backing by gold was gone. So that began to create some thoughts in the minds of global leaders. Maybe we should rethink this. Maybe we should do something else. Well, in order to slow the bleeding and in order to stem that kind of thinking, uh, President Nixon and his Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, just further pushed the alliance with the Arab nations uh, even further with a really tactical move. And what this move was, was basically for all of the oil that was coming up out of the ground in Saudi Arabia, one of our, one of our allies that spanned all the way back to the 1940s, <clears throat> uh, ironically, 
uh, what we did is we didn't really know they had very much oil back in the 1940s. We knew a little bit. We didn't know the full scope until later. And so by the 1970s, what the idea was, was that, okay, instead of backing the United States dollar with gold, let's have a quasi backing of oil for the dollar. And how would this work? This would work simply by the oil producing nations such as Saudi Arabia. They were the very first where the arrangement was made. They would price all of the oil that came out of their ground with US dollars. And so if you were living in Russia or if you were living in Japan or you were living in China and you wanted to buy oil coming up out of the Saudi ground, Saudi desert, then you would have to cough up U.S. dollars. Now, before this arrangement, there were other things accepted. Uh, but by exclusively, uh, and not that the Saudis wouldn't you know, naturally want to accept dollars. It wasn't like that they were rejecting them prior to this point. It was just simply the fact that they weren't forced to use them. And so, so Saudi oil literally could not be bought uh, without a U.S. dollar. And while on one hand, people may say, well, that's strange. Why would the Saudi Arabian government agree to only accept some foreign currency for their own oil? Who in the right mind would do this? This doesn't make any sense. Well, the, the flip side of it was, in essence, that the United States was going to deepen its alliance with the Saudi Arabian government, and it would provide it with weapons. It would provide it with military protection for its oil fields. It would protect those oil fields. And during that time, there was a pernicious enemy uh, that, uh, according to the Saudis, and that was Israel. Mm -hmm. They were concerned about Israel. They were worried about Israel. And Israel was advancing quickly, technologically speaking. And so they also received um, protections from you know, the up-and-coming Israeli government. Uh, the United States actually promised to kind of keep Israel on a leash from Saudi Arabia. This was a really hidden part of it, not very brought out, uh, kind of offends some people later when they see what's going on. It's kind of like, no kidding, this is strange. Yeah. But that's really kind of what happened. And so by the time that the Saudi Arabian government said, you're going to give us you know, access to these U.S. weapons, these advanced military systems, you're going to protect us from you know, countries like Israel and our neighborhood who we don't like. You're going to provide all of this. And all we have to do is take the, take the oil and sell it to everybody for U.S. dollars. Well, that's not all they had to do. They also had to take the U.S. dollars that they made from the oil that they sold and then put it into U.S. bonds, thus kind of giving Washington a double loan. So mm. they were using the currency, which created a demand for the currency, which they needed a permission slip for that because they didn't have any backing by gold. And then yeah. secondly, then they were propping up the U.S. bond market by purchasing these things. It was called petrodollar recycling. And it yeah. still exists. I mean, it still exists. We've seen it diminish a little bit in recent years due to a lot of the things that are going on. But but suffice it to say that once Saudi Arabia realized what the deal was early on, 73, 74, 1973, 1974, then you had many other OPEC nations who said, this sounds like a screaming deal. You know, all <laughs> we have to do is do this and they will provide us military support and all of this. So when you look at a lot of the tensions in the Middle East, they really are um, 
attributable in some ways, perhaps in many ways, to U.S. policy that mm-hmm. kind of created and fostered a militarized society so that we could have uh, a prop up of our U.S. dollar and a propping up of our debt markets. So we kind of militarized the area with U.S. weapons and it kind of the, the blowback has been obvious, you know, over the last many years. Yeah. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that part? Because I don't think a lot of people, myself included, understand that. Um, you know, how did that agreement change that re- that part of the, that part of the world? Um, you know, our understanding, I think, or your, your typical, I think, American understanding of the region is that it was an area kind of in constant conflict. Um, and the Israelis just added another uh, element of conflict in the mix. But from what I'm hearing from you, that may not be necessarily the case. Am I correct there? Or? Yes. Uh, yes. You know, there's so many different directions I could go there. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking of a few different ideas. But but let me just try to focus uh, a little bit more on just the regional aspect. So prior to this time, there were, there were wars going on. I mean, there was, yeah. of course, the Six-Day War in 1967. There was the War of Independence in 1948. Uh, but a lot of the anger was directed at this new nation, uh, Israel, that was you know, kind of being born uh, in this former region known as Palestine, named yeah. that by the ancient Romans. And, and so the, the, the tensions here were aggravated uh, largely, but what's interesting is, is that the U S was acting as a, people have often looked at the United States and, and they've heard the United States say that we are Israel's best friend, right? We've often heard that, you know, the greatest ally that Israel have is, has is the United States. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, what we've also seen is that when Israel wants to protect itself, when Israel says we're going to blow this nation to smithereens because mm-hmm. it has bombed our country or whatever, the United States and anyone who's paid attention to this area of the world or foreign policy knows this. The U.S. always steps in and tells the Israel no. It doesn't give it a green light to do this, right? It doesn't green light their operations. It always tries to play it down. They don't even really let people know. It's very quiet and, and private about how the Israelis have a nuclear bomb. I mean, so all of this has been really downplayed and really, you know, really uh, kind of put in the corner, so to speak. And yeah. uh, what many people don't realize is that this has to do, of course, with the arrangement that the United States has made with these foreign nations. Uh, or Israel doesn't have oil. Uh, Israel has Israel has something else that the United States needs. Uh, and so it's different. Uh, uh, the, the other ones who have oil, the Arab nations who have oil, well, they get different things. So the United States is really kind of an equal opportunity user and abuser. I mean, it will, it will literally kind of, it will, it will just like any empire, it yeah. will find a way to use the resources that are, that it's given. And the, in the middle East, if you look at all of the weapons that are being shot at, uh, us, you know, us soldiers in the middle East, Many of them, not all, but many of them have, you know, U.S. manufacturers listed on the bomb, you know, listed on the gun. Listed on, so we have provided much of the military firepower in that region. Now, Russia has certainly contributed in recent years uh, and also China, but the United States has bears a big, big brunt of this. They have really militarized the area and it's 
it's one of these things where you're just kind of playing a game of tightrope. I mean, how long can you go before something just literally blows up? And we've seen a few things blow up. We had 9-11, which was directly tied, directly tied to the United States relationship with Saudi Arabia. It was specifically because of our military bases that we put yep. into Saudi Arabia, thanks to the petrodollar system, that uh, guys like Osama bin Laden were complaining about, right? So they view our footprint in these holy areas to Islam as an affront to their religion. They view it as an affront uh, to their way of life. And to us, it's just business. You know, to us, it's it's not really about any of that. It's all just about the almighty dollar. And, you know, not, not everybody is driven by money alone. Uh, there are other motivations, but the United States is very driven, of course, by by the dollar. I'd like to get come go back to the U.S. and then I definitely want to go back to the to the Middle East because there's definitely a lot we can dig into there. So if you have an arrangement where someone has to purchase an asset in a particular currency, uh, and you also have an arrangement where uh, those uh, those that currency then has to be stored in bonds from the uh, country of origin or from the holder of that currency. Um, there effectively has to be some kind of a deficit in that nation's economy in order to make this work. So there has to be some way to get that money out of the country and into the hands of these other um, these other nations that are looking to purchase oil in order to make that whole mechanism work. And our mechanism, to my understanding, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, has largely been debt. Am I correct or am I, am I off base there? That's correct. Yeah, that's that's yeah. absolutely correct. So, when we think about the <clears throat> we think about the uh, currency itself, mm -hmm. uh, this might be a real simplified view of economics here, but it kind of does the job. It'll do the treatment. It'll help us. Is that when I often use the illustration of a hamburger stand? I think this mm -hmm. is just the perfect way to do it. You might have read that in part of the things that I, I wrote. Did, but yeah. the hamburger, yeah, the hamburger stand, I think, is a great illustration because if let's just say that that you, Dan, are going to start a hamburger stand. And you're going to start it in your local community and it's going to be Dan's hamburgers and you're going to be selling these things. And, and, uh, you, what do you want? I mean, what, how are you going to succeed? Well, you're going to succeed if there's demand for what, for the hamburgers that you create, right? And you're the one who creates them. You're the one who goes, you know, and gets the grill, heats it up, puts the patty on the grill and you start putting them out. Now, the more demand that you can get for the hamburgers that you sell, well, then the more of a permission slip you have to hire more workers to help you flip those patties to sell them, right? So, and I use the illustration of maybe some, you know, you get, you get some sort of national press, you know, Dan's hamburgers in your neck of the woods, suddenly everybody loves Dan's hamburgers. And so they really want to buy these hamburgers. Well, now you have a bigger permission slip now that you have a national front. So when you think about it, if you have a hamburger stand and your goal is to make as much money as you possibly can, do you want a local following or do you want a regional following? You'd prefer the regional. Well, or would you rather have a national following? Well, you'd rather have a national, right? Or would you rather have an international? And so now you start to see that this is how currencies work. The currency is like the hamburger and the federal reserve is like you. They're the ones pumping this stuff out and they want everybody to want what they make. And the more that they can get other people to accept what they're making and to demand it and want it, 
that gives them a permission slip to go make more. So in your case, you would, you would not have a permission slip to go, you know, make a million patties or hire 500,000 people if you didn't have international demand, right? So likewise, the, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury together, they need international demand for their product so that people will then uh, use it, giving them a permission slip to keep printing more, right? Otherwise, they have to stop printing it. And if they stop printing the dollars, then suddenly it everything starts to reverse. And this goes to the point of what we were talking about off of the air, which is this idea of the pre- present being the minimum. That we live in a society today where if we are not constantly printing new dollars and expanding the monetary supply, then something's wrong. Then something is incorrect according to our economic theory. We say, well, this this can't work. You know, how can we possibly survive if prices are not constantly rising? If I don't get a raise every single year, then something's wrong with the economy. If my house value doesn't go up every single year, there must be something wrong with the economy. Uh, if the price of all of these other things are not rising, then it's not natural. Well, in fact, it's quite the opposite. When you go back through history, you'll find that price stability uh, you know, and monetary stability was actually kind of the goal. Uh, well, they say that it's the goal today, but the form of stability we have is requires an ever-increasing number of dollars. Now, this is why we connected to the petrodollar system, is that the petrodollar system is what created this international demand uh, after the gold window was closed, because when the gold window was closed, that demand started began to shrink. So they had to figure out a way, how do we get more demand for our printed dollars? And the petrodollar system served to do that, probably beyond their wildest dreams. They could not probably have imagined the architects of this system, how well it would succeed. But what they were offering to Arab nations and other nations that provided oil was just too tantalizing. They had to take it. The the fear about this petrodollar system, Dan, is what happens when countries like Saudi Arabia uh, or other countries that produce lots of oil, what happens when they say, we're going to accept Chinese yuan and U.S. dollars, right? This is the fear of policymakers in the in the United States. What if they say we will accept our own currency and Chinese yuan, or maybe even the euro, right? And so we think to ourselves, Dan. We say, well, have 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 any countries tried this? Do we have any experience? Well, we can think of one. We can think of Iraq back in two thousand and two. I believe it was back in two thousand. Uh, the leader of Iraq, Saddam Hussein, emerged from a meeting with his generals, and they had made a decision that they were going to st- stop selling their oil, which they were part of, you know, OPEC. They were going to stop selling their oil uh, in for dollars, right? This yeah. was just like, you've got to be kidding. What were they going to accept instead of dollars? They were going to accept the euro, a brand new fledgling currency that was just popping up. And so in 2002, they're taking you know, uh, euros for their oil. Well, mm-hmm. I think it was maybe 2003 when we, we all saw on TV, Saddam Hussein hanging from a noose, uh, his country invaded for participating in nine 11, which nobody ever explained. And then, 
And then uh, we also have other examples. Uh, Iran, for example, was a country who said, we're not going to take this abuse from the United States. We're going to print or price our oil and other currencies. Well, the people of Iran today, mostly, by the way, who really who, who love the United States, love the people of the United States, love the culture of the United States in large part, are living in times of great peril because the sanctions have been applied to, to Iran, which really never hurts the elites. It usually just hurts the, the, the people on the street. Uh, so Iran has certainly been part of the axis of evil. Venezuela doesn't like the U.S. dollar for its oil. They're part of the axis of evil. Uh, North Korea you know, doesn't like to use the U.S. dollar, so therefore they're... So what you begin to see is that we live in a society where if you understand currency war, then you then it really kind of helps all of the geopolitical tensions. It really helps clarify them. It doesn't explain all of them, by the way, Dan. It's not the, the only solution, uh, but it helps explain and demystify several strange things that go on that we may not be able to understand without understanding how the currency plays such a major role in our foreign policy. I hope you're enjoying this episode, and I wanted to take a short break to share ways you can learn more about the electoral reform movement that is gaining steam in this country if the uptick in listeners to YDHTY is any indication. Now, first, as I've mentioned before, over the past few months, I've been working with an organization called Rank the Vote, and their goal is to bring ranked choice voting to every state in the union. And while there are so many ways we can reform government, ranked choice voting remains, in my opinion, the least drastic, most feasible, and most effective way to get the kind of diversity in American politics we need. And if you'd like to help, you can visit rankthevote.us to learn more. Second, I want to hear from you. So let me know what you think of this episode or others you've listened to, or just give me suggestions on topics and guests by visiting ydhty.com or hitting me up on social media. Twitter seems the place you like to talk, so feel free to grab me there. And to the folks I've chatted with before, you've been a huge help in the growth of the show. Thank you very much for all of your comments and suggestions, and I'd love to get more people in the conversation. Let us get back to the episode. I had not known um, about uh, Iraq uh, and Iraq uh, selling oil and euro until I until I read your piece. And just to bring the listeners in too, when Iraq decided to denominate or decided to sell oil in euro. It was actually a bad economic deal. The euro was not as strong as the dollar. Now, after the Iraq war, I think you mentioned it was something like just mere weeks or months after the war ended that Iraq all of a sudden decided to start selling its oil in U.S. dollars again, correct? That's It was literally one of the very first things that happened uh, once the United States had, had retaken Baghdad. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and and at that time, that was a bad deal for Iraq because now the dollar had fallen in, in relation to the euro. And you know, I think what I found really fascinating is, you know, to your point, you know, you can look across the map and see the the this this pattern in the countries that we have conflict with. Like you said, um, there's Venezuela. There's of course Russia. Um, you know, one of the things I cite. 
a lot on this podcast is the fact that right after the Bush administration took, or uh, George W., right after uh, the the Bush administration came into office in their first term, one of the first initiatives pre-9-11 was a missile defense shield for Eastern Europe. And everyone was kind of scratching their heads as to why, because Russia had been kind of dormant. Um, and again, you know, getting back to, to, to what you said, you know, a large independent oil producing nation, uh, an independent minded oil producing nation is not conducive to Amer- to the American interest of preserving the dollar. Correct. That's yeah. absolutely right. And we've, and we've seen this, uh, intensify in recent years. So right now, for example, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, still prices its oil in U.S. dollars. Uh, it still conducts, you know, the trade in U.S. dollars. It still participates in the petrodollar recycling. But, but don't think for a minute that it hasn't questioned that, and don't think for a minute that it's still not questioning it. In fact, if you ever are curious about, you know, uh, this topic, go back and just Google any kind of official visit by the U.S. presidents to Saudi Arabia. And you'll find that every single president that goes to Saudi Arabia or who who sees the king of Saudi Arabia bows to the Saudi uh, the king of Saudi Arabia. There's very few people that the president of the United States bows down to. But whenever you see, uh, for example, you go back, George W. Bush, President Barack Obama, President Trump, uh, we haven't seen Mr. Biden, but we'll see it, I'm sure, at some point, where they bow to the, to the king of Saudi Arabia. Now, we say, well, this is some sort of ritualistic thing, or it's just kind of culture or whatever. Okay, well, that he's the president of the United States. And, and what I'm saying is, is that what this shows us is that there's a lot of subservience. There's a lot of strings being pulled that people like you and I just can't simply see. You know, we just don't know. We, we don't know how it all how it all ultimately works. But what we do know is that the king of Saudi Arabia is bowed down to by the president of the United States. That's a strange, strange thing when you think about the human rights abuses of Saudi Arabia. That's a strange thing when you consider that Saudi Arabia is literally on the flip side of the coin of, uh, of our own faith, you know, that we so-called profess here. Uh, and so it's a real strange, uneasy alliance that the United States has with Saudi Arabia and how long it will last is difficult to know. Now, someone wants to destroy that alliance. Um, and that would include people like the leaders of Russia, uh, would also include the people, uh, leading China. Uh, China is in fact, very, very heavily focused upon investing all across the Middle East and in Africa and has done an incredible job of wooing the, in, a, in a similar fashion, the way that Washington did the Middle East, uh, China has done. And so China has invested tremendously in this area. It's made great relations in this area. And then it's also advancing its own economic policies in the region. Uh, it is advancing. In fact, you know, we've seen the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is really expanding across the country. That kind of connects with Russia's uh, uh, you know, kind of Eastern European Union that it's kind of formed. Uh, and then the Eurasian Union, I think is what they call it. And then there's 
then we also have things like the brand new currency being put out by uh, China. It's not a new currency. It's a digital version of their own currency, the digital yuan. Well, the, the power that the United States has enjoyed up until this time economically is that it, because it has total dominance, although it's waning, but total dominance in the, in the region of dollar supremacy, that is, its currency is accepted almost everywhere. Well, other countries who want to dislodge the place of the United States and its supremacy have to be very smart. They have to figure out how to do this. It's a tough, tough situation for them. And because the United States enjoys the supremacy of its currency, its sanctions uh, work tremendously well, at least they have for, for some time. Now, when we say they work tremendously well, what we mean by that is not that it actually achieves its ultimate goal. It actually devastates countries that it, it applies sanctions to. But my point is, is that the sanctions, when they are applied, it's, it's, a, it's a force that the United States has long used and it enjoys. And it's one of the ways that it's able to keep countries in line, so to speak. Um, with the release of this new digital yuan by China, uh, this is not going to be connected to the dollar system in any way, shape, or form. It won't involve SWIFT or any of the institutions that normally would be watching over this kind of stuff. And so, therefore, we're seeing right before our eyes, right now in our own in this in our own decade here, Dan, we're seeing the creation of things that are designed to destroy the petrodollar system. We're seeing things that are literally being rolled out to destroy. And so the digital yuan is a perfect example of this, uh, where you and I could use the digital yuan here in the United States. It'll be borderless. And um, the United States, while it has been pretty savvy on protecting its currency supremacy, the dollar supremacy, it's it's starting to get outflanked. And um, I, I don't have a prediction on when this whole you know system will end per se, but yeah. I do know that it will end. I mean, yeah. everything that goes up comes down. Every empire that's risen has fallen, and the United States is not immune to history or to you know to the to the, to the tides of history. Yeah, I, I think of the Hemingway quote, which is when when the the narrator describes how he went bankrupt, and it's slowly then suddenly. And, uh, and, and I, and, and that's kind of what I expect here, because kind of to a point you addressed earlier, you know, we assume the present is the norm, or we assume the past is the norm. And if you look at the US population today, the there are very few people born with a living memory of the pre Bretton Woods world. And even those people are were probably children at the time. Um, so what we accept as as reality going all the way back to the parents and grandparents is this is this world where the dollar is the dominant currency is the this world where the us is a dominant if not the dominant military power and you know what actually got me mm. to do my research and what got me to your site was a conversation i had in an earlier episode about the role cryptocurrency could play in unseating the dollar because because again it is it's first off, it's far more convenient for transmitting large amounts of currency uh, internationally than the current system we have. 
Um, but it's also borderless, like you said. It's also something that can't be controlled. And so, you know, I guess as we look at that as a potential threat, is there a way the U.S. can unwind it? Like, is there a way we can engineer a soft landing? Or is this just a case that the storm is coming and, you know, let's stock up on water and beans and ramen and wait for it to come? Well, I would say that it's similar to your Hemingway quote. Um, but I've also compared it to this, that you know, every empire eventually collapses. And we like the idea of it just being quick and painless, you know, yeah. uh, the idea, like if, like if, if you're standing at a cliff and you have to jump, you know, it's a terrible situation, but you jump and it's over. But if you're on a 90 degree grade and you have to roll down the hill and hit every single rock along the way, you'd say, okay, I'll just jump. You know, you don't, you don't want to have to deal with the whole, you know, brutal rolling down for minutes and minutes. And I think that's unfortunately where we are is that it won't be like that. Uh, it will, it will be a slow grind and a slow realization. It'll begin with things like this. Uh, right now, uh, as of actually going back to 2014, the IMF has declared that the, uh, that the GDP on a per, uh, on a purchasing power parity basis, just all things being equal, taking out the exchange rates, it, you know, all things being equal, the China is a larger economy as of 2014 that happened in 2014. So if you, if you remove the, uh, the nominal GDP aspect and just look at PPP, then you're going to say China's larger. They're large, they're the largest economy in the world as of 2014, according to the IMF, according to that, to that, to that metric, which I think is a lot better than just nominal GDP. Uh, and they admit that as well. So China's already bigger, but the average individual on the street doesn't know that yet here in America, that they still view America as the king. They still view, they still think that there's that, you know, that it's impossible that we would be dislodged. So there will be an event at some point where your listeners uh, my podcast listeners, everybody, you know, you and I both will be sitting down and we'll hear a report on the news, big, big headline somewhere that says China is now officially larger than the United States. Now you and I both know that's already true, but the American people still think they're number one. They still think they're number one. They still are putting America first, like the Trump administration was trying to do. And they also sense that they're also failing. This is where the America first idea even came from. Uh, uh, President Trump, President Trump was very uh, antagonistic towards China because I think fundamentally he understood that the United States is losing uh, ground to China because China is outsmarting the United States. This is not a surprise. But many people don't realize the actual numbers. They don't realize that the United States is actually smaller than China on a relative basis. And so because of this, there will, we're going to have more shock and awe ahead. So we're going to hear CBS evening news, you know, come on and say, China is now officially bigger, you know, than the United States, according to, you know, a nominal GDP, which is the, the sacrosanct, uh, you know, uh, metric that economists use. Uh, and so when that happens, that's going to be a, a head trip, you know, for Americans. They're not really sure what to do with that. And that's just going to be another sign that we're slip, slip, slipping away 
uh, from this time of empire. Many people, again, don't understand, Dan, that our peak, uh, our peak economy was in the 1950s. We were never bigger than we were in the 1950s on a, on a global uh, share of GDP. We were the biggest economy in the world in the 1950s. Uh, we, were, we had the largest share of the pie in the, in the 1950s. But that was the peak. We've been going down ever since. Ever since we've been going down, down, down. And so eventually China will surpass us. And that'll be a head trip for many people. Um, the other thing is, is that what happens in this scenario is that because we have had this permission slip to print all of this money, that is why the Federal Reserve is able to say, oh, you know, we're having problems. Oh, stocks are going down in value. <gasps> well, we can't allow this to happen, right? And so what they do is they flood the economy with freshly printed money. Why can they do that? They can do that because other countries want the dollars, right? They need them to buy oil. They need them to buy whatever. They like them, so they, they, they take them. Um, and so the Federal Reserve has this permission slip just to do this all the time. Other countries don't have that permission slip. If other countries, you know, begin to print a bunch of currency, they're going to, who else in the world is going to want their currency and have to hold their current, who wants to hold, you know, some African currency at all times on their books, only the people living in that country or maybe neighbors. And so they don't have an international demand for their hamburger or for their currency, so to speak. And so if they flood the economy with money so as to prevent stocks from falling, uh, then they're going to have massive inflation. So we don't face the incredible price inflation due to a global demand, which has been known as the exorbitant privilege that we enjoy is with the U.S. dollar, and also because largely of innovation and technology, which is driving down costs, that has also helped us. I don't think that the tech and innovation story will will evolve. I think it's probably going to stay that way for some time, but I do think the international demand for the dollar is going to wane specifically because we are now beginning to view currencies differently. This is very strange. When I wrote my book, Bankruptcy of Our Nation, when I was writing it back in 2007, I was, you know, storming across stages during that time saying the economy is in trouble, the dollar is, you know, not a, not a good situation, this is a problem. And uh, at that time, at that very same time, Dan, I find this to be interesting. I was creating solutions, my five levels of financial freedom. I was trying to create something for people that they could latch onto. At that same time, there was another fellow somewhere in the world. I don't even know who it is. Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he is. Yes. Uh, he, was, he, he was writing the white paper for Bitcoin. Both yep. of us were pointing at the, both of us were pointing in our papers. Mine was a book, his was a white paper. Both of us were pointing at the Federal Reserve and saying, this is the problem, right? And so Bitcoin uh, is so powerful and so popular because it's a currency that is finite. It's a currency that has no government. It has no government. And so because it has no, it's a currency without a government and nobody's ever thought of this. They say, this doesn't make sense. How can you have a currency without a government to issue the currency? And that's where we are. We're now in this new novel area where we are living in a time where we have currencies that are not issued by governments. And we're going to be evolving in our view of currency, I think, for many decades. And the, the reason why this is potentially very negative for the United States 
is because the United States doesn't want to have this conversation. And you can tell, right? They don't want this conversation. They don't want to have a conversation about cryptocurrencies. They've been trying to ignore them. Now, China sees the benefit. China saw the benefit early on and said, oh, we like this. Now, they tried to ban cryptocurrencies in their own country, found out that they couldn't. So in 2014, they began studying how to create their own digital version of their own currency. And they've already released it in kind of a test mode across the country. And uh, so China is latching on. China is on the cutting edge of digital currency, whereas the United States is kind of taking this quote unquote wait and see approach, which really means that they're going to get further and further behind in this technology, which is exactly what you don't want to see if you're trying to preserve the dollar supremacy that we have today. They really should be on the cutting edge of this story to protect the dollar, but they're not because they know that ultimately it's not going to turn out well for them. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. Well, and it's funny. So my departure from any sort of partisan allegiance you know, happened in the early 2000s when, you know, it became clear there was no longer a party of fiscal sustainability. There was no longer a party that existed. Um, the political calculus in keeping taxes low and spending high is just too big to resist. There's no politician that can go against that. And I'd agree with you. I think, I think there's no politically palatable way to work your way out of our current situation. We just really need to have that hard landing. Um, interesting stat I discovered was that if you look at Bitcoin, you know, 65% of Bitcoin mining takes place in China today. 65%. Majority of Bitcoin holdings are actually in the United States, which just baffled me. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that played out. I've got maybe one more question or, or one more question packaged in a comment, which is, you know, I, so I'm, I'm hearing everything you're saying and I'm just thinking about the, the, the last now 80 some odd years of American history and kind of what we're looking at going forward. And the, there's no way out of this. There's no way out of this. We need to decide as a country, do we want to be a country of high taxes or lower government services or potentially both. You know, we cannot have the world's largest military, uh, a first world infrastructure and low taxes simultaneously and, and certainly not uh, going forward. And when you look at what the petrodollar system has done, it's sort of put us in a devil's bargain. Um, so we really have to, in many cases, make a lot of moral compromises uh, as a country. Uh, and, and really have a government that behaves, I think, against our values. And so when I look at what we do after that hard landing, you know, if you look at America and you look at what made America what it was at the time of Bretton Woods, at the time of World War II, um, it, it was an imperfect following of a certain set of values that I think maybe we need to get back to. And, and when I look at the global stage right now, you know, as in any times of crisis, there is a debate of autocracy versus democracy. Um, there's a debate right now. China is, and, and Russia for that matter, are both very vocal about the fact that what's going on in the U.S. is a direct result of our of the liberties that we give everyone here and of the liberties that we enjoy. 
Um, and China is also faring much better in this turmoil than we are. And I think that's not unlike World War II. I mean, Japan came out of the Great Depression quicker than the United States did. Germany fared pretty well uh, when Hitler took power in the beginning. Um, and I think we're at that same crossroads. You know, we're at that point where our values as a democratic nation are being challenged by a lot of these headwinds. And in my mind, you know, when I think about if we're not going to avoid the punch, we at least can decide how we're going to react to it. And in my mind, it's really getting back to allying ourselves with the countries and with the principles that got us here in the first place. Yeah. As far as what to do, you know, I think, I think, I think the problem with, with, uh, the future for the United States is that they have taught other nations how to do it. Uh, they have, and they have also showed their hand. They've shown their hand and they have been tyrannical and quite frankly, you know, big bullies when it comes to the power that they have with their dollar. And many would in many, many other countries. Now, some people may defend the United States there, but many other countries and many other nations would say, no, you know, the United States abused its privilege. And I think what we have done is we have taught other nations that if you ever receive the privilege we have, it's okay to abuse it, you know, because we did, and we're the best nation on the face of the planet is what they tell people. So, so I, I think we've kind of modeled, uh, a kind of, uh, approach that we would not want, uh, being used by some other nation that didn't have our values. Uh, and yet that's exactly what we've done. Um, fortunately other countries aren't bombing us right now, uh, demanding that we stop our practices. They're just simply warning us. They're telling us stop, you know, or, and they're also developing their own systems. Uh, for example, the IMF and the world bank, you know, these have been extremely predatory in places like South America and Africa and, and, and many other places. I mean, extremely predatory. They, they've really abused what the Bretton Woods system was really about. Although you could probably, you could probably debate that the Bretton Woods system was always designed to be in some ways predatory. That's why they created it. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's exactly what's happening in Asia now where Asia has seen what the United States has done. And they're creating their own version of the World Bank, the AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. They're laying out their uh, grand vision of a Belt and Road Initiative. But when China approaches global growth and growing its brand, so to speak, globally, it's really come under the name of commerce and less war. Uh, so here in the United States, you know, we are paying... I don't know how many hundreds of billions of dollars every year to prop up the military. And the United States military is larger than, you know, many of the other militaries combined, uh, the top militaries. But many people, again, because of this discussion, it may make sense, but the military is really used as a, as a dollar protection service. I mean, it's when you look at the Middle East, for example, and you look back at a lot of the problems we've had, what the Middle East has really been is has been kind of an area for U.S. corporations to exploit, to build out pipelines and to build out, you know, oil and gas infrastructure and all of this. We've made a killing from our Middle East uh, incursions and excursions. But the uh, but in the end, many of these countries they're not, they're not thriving. I mean, these countries are not thriving as a result of letting us, our corporations, in to you know, kind of do what we do. 
And so China is trying to create a win-win situation with these countries. You know, hey, we'll scratch your back, you scratch ours, and everybody kind of grows together. The United States has been using a big, uh, it's bully pulpit and a big stick uh, to kind of push people into line. And China is using a different strategy that is wooing many of these former allies of the United States. And so I, I think we're being outsmarted. I think what's ultimately happening here is that empires are rarely uh, your friend. You know, they obviously move according to their own, their own, uh, you know, incentives. And so we shouldn't expect empires to have any kind of morality or anything like this. Um, but when it comes to China, you know, they are certainly uh, outsmarting the United States. And we are, quite frankly, Dan, the United States is kind of in its fat Elvis phase. I was a, I was an yeah. Elvis fan, you know, when yeah. I was growing up and I remember young, I remember young Elvis at 21, you know, he's yep. shaking his hips, you know, and the lady's screaming. And, you know, by the time he's in his early forties, you know, he's in a jumpsuit, can't keep his belly in the jumpsuit, drugged yeah. up, you know, shooting at TV, totally paranoid. And I think, <laughs> America's kind of fat Elvis. I mean, we really are. We're, we're kind of in a state where we're paranoid about everything. Uh, you know, paranoid. I mean, look at COVID. I mean, look how paranoid everybody is about COVID. Look how paranoid everybody is about everything. Everything is everything is worthy of being paranoid about in the United States. We're totally paranoid. Just like just like fat Elvis sitting in his chair shooting his television because he doesn't like what it says. Yeah, you know, we're just literally drugged up and paranoid, and we are drugged up. I mean. We're literally just, you know, and I think China is just simply exploiting this. I mean, if if we look at China or other countries and say, well, they're bad for exploiting this, then we would say, well, that's what, exactly what we would do, you know? So we did this with the opium wars. I mean, we, when China was drugged up, we took advantage of them. I think China's doing the same thing right back to us. We're a drugged up paranoid nation uh, using debt to act like we're rich. And one day we're living off the kindness of strangers. One day, eventually... Uh, you know, we will see that other nations realize that they can hold other currencies on their books besides the dollar and they'll be able to survive. We're slowly moving that way. Can the United States slow it down? It's going to take a lot of brain power. It's going to take a lot of smart action on our part. I don't know if they can do it. I don't think we have the political will to do it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we even have the the wiggle room financially to pull anything off because we're so indebted. You know, uh, under the Trump administration in 2020, um, the the party of the fiscal conservatives spent more money uh, in March and April of 2020 than the than than all of the money spent before that time combined from the founding in 1776 until 2020 in one to two months, the United States spent more than all the money that had been spent up until that time. Now yeah. the, the irony of this apparently is lost upon the party of fiscal conservatives. You know, uh, they don't seem to notice this little glaring problem, but we are spending money at a, at a rate, uh, that is simply unsustainable. And if other countries take advantage of that, how can we blame them when we have done the same thing to other countries? It's a grim picture, but it's somewhat offset by the fact that you've got hunk of hunk of burn and love going through my head right now. So 
I, I, the, 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 the fat Elvis analogy is just perfect. Well, Jerry, I could go on for the rest of the day. Uh, and, and we may have to do this again, but I, I really thank you for your time. This has been super interesting. And the site again is followthemoney.com. The book is bankruptcy of our nation. Check them both out. And thanks again, Jerry. Oh, my pleasure, Dan. This has been really fun. Thank you. That website again is followthemoney.com, spelled just as it sounds. And I've also included some additional resources in the show notes on the YDHTY website, which you can find by visiting ydhty.com and clicking the episodes link in the upper right-hand corner. And of course, if you like this episode, please share it and give it a review. And if you have not reviewed YDHTY yet, and you have an R in your name, it's your turn to do so today. I'm trying to keep things fair, so you have an R in your name. Today's your turn. Now, today's conversation with Jerry, aside from sending me down a YouTube rabbit hole where I watched the Aloha from Hawaii special in its entirety, got me thinking about how we deal with the coming shift in economic power that's more or less inevitable as the U.S. takes on debt and China's economy continues to grow. And here's my thought. A strong and prosperous China isn't any more of a threat to the United States than a strong and prosperous Japan or Germany is. And we've seen that former rivals can be strong allies and contribute to greater prosperity worldwide. Now that out of the way, a strong and autocratic China is. Authoritarian regimes are generally not so good at accountability as we saw in their initial less than transparent response to the first outbreak of COVID-19, and they often have problems playing nice in the sandbox. Now, we have a tough enough time maintaining democracy in the United States to take on the job of bringing it to China, but reaffirming our ties to democracies in the region and to our own democratic institutions couldn't hurt, which kind of brings us back to the issue of Saudi Arabia all probably going to be punted to another episode so forgive me that out of the way music as always courtesy of Quellertap. ydhty's editorial advisor is adam yaffe ydhty is produced in north carolina united states of america by the big gino jason putney until the next this is dan sally adios